Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farrah Fight. Today we're going to get into the weeds on a matter of law. Or maybe we should say we're going to get into the weed because we're going to talk about Missouri's new marijuana law. Our guest is Eric Walter, a partner with the Armstrong T-Sale Law Firm in St. Louis. He is a commercial and business attorney who is representing companies and seeking state licenses for raising and marketing medical marijuana and its byproducts. First, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Good morning. I wanted to start our questions with a look back to what happened when Missouri voters approved medical marijuana in the state of Missouri. Can you outline for us what was passed by the voters at that point in time and what happens when more than one ballot question dealing with the same topic passes at the same time? Well, I'll tell you, that was quite an issue that everyone was researching, everyone was prepared with to deal with because we anticipated based on polling that all three of these ballot initiatives would pass. One was the statutory initiative, which meant that the General Assembly in Missouri could go in and make changes anytime they wanted. So there were a lot of people that opposed that idea. Then there were two constitutional amendments that were significantly different. The one that passed was called Amendment 2. And in the end, it was a remarkable thing. The Missouri electorate went out collectively and educated itself and decided and hold that Amendment 2 was better than the other two options. And it passed overwhelmingly. It got the most votes of anything or anyone on the ballot, and the other two decisively failed. So there was no issue to go to court on or look at work for a precedent on or things like that? Thankfully, no, because what the cases seem to say, and instances in the past where two ballot initiatives cover the same subject matter, the courts have said that both become a part of the Constitution. The one that received the most votes is implemented in whole. The one that received fewer votes, but still received a majority support from Missourians, is also implemented to the extent it doesn't conflict with the first one. And so in short, it would have been very complicated. It would have been, it would have meant that the industry was bogged down in litigation for some period of time while courts sorted out how this was all supposed to work. I've heard this in the legislature quite often. We're going to pass this and let the courts sort it out. And that's, this would be a case of uh, what that would, what that would be. Yes. But even though only one passed, is it fair to say that things are still a bit complicated as we try to implement this in Missouri? It is. It, it is a complicated law. It's a highly regulated law. And maybe the only other comparison is for casinos, where you create a new industry and you're going to issue licenses and regulate the licensees, but only a limited number of licenses. And so that's created a very competitive environment where, in our case, Nearly 2,300 applications have been filed for a total of what will be 348 licensees. Who will sift out who's going to be the 348 licensees? Is that done by the state or is it local? It is. It's not local. The local governments are limited to just making decisions about zoning they have in the Constitution, time, place, and manner authority. But beyond that, it isn't a local decision as to who receives licenses. That is left to the Department of Health and Senior Services. And the process that it has designed because this is such a competitive environment and because in so many other states where this industry has been adopted, there have been litigation over who receives licenses, the state has come up with a sort of two-part application where on the one part, there are minimum standards that an applicant must establish to show that the applicant is qualified. Things like that it has an approved site, 
that none of the owners have a disqualifying felony offense because there's a desire to not have criminals be owners and beneficiaries of the industry. And then separately, the Constitution sets forth 10 evaluation criteria. And that was changed or that was uh, adopted into a series of questions in the application. And those questions had to be answered in an anonymous way where all the names are redacted so there couldn't be any political influence on the outcome of who receives licenses. Can you explain the differences between different activities or entities in the industry? Yes. So cultivation is the growth. The cultivators have the, the most expensive operations. They are responsible for growing from seeds or, or more often cuttings or other kind of genetic materials. They grow the plants through their different stages. The typical cycle is about 75 days to complete the growing. And at the end, the cultivators have the ability to sell their products to two different licensees. They can sell to manufacturers or they can sell to dispensaries. And the products that they sell to the dispensaries, which then the patients can buy, is just the raw flour or the bud that people are familiar with. Manufacturers will buy raw flour typically in bulk from the cultivators, and then they will be the licensees who transform that raw flour into any other kind of deliverable. And that could be vaping cartridges or edibles, all kinds of things like gummies and different things like that, creams and topicals, uh, tinctures, which are drops that you just drop into your mouth and your tongue and you absorb sublingually. Then the manufacturers sell the dispensaries. And dispensaries, of course, function like the pharmacy. That is where qualifying patients with patient cards can go, present identification to show that they have the right to purchase, and then they may go in and buy either the flour or any of the manufacturer's products. The testing license is the last one. Before those products can go to the dispensary, testing has to be completed to ensure that they're pure and to also disclose all the, the compounds within each product. So why don't regular pharmacies get to do this? Well, Bob, there are probably two reasons for that. One would be that those pharmacies would be concerned about the fact that they primarily carry DEA-regulated conventional medications, and then they would be also attempting to offer these federally illegal medications. And the federal government's eyes, marijuana is still a Schedule One narcotic, right there alongside heroin. Cocaine is apparently in the federal government's eyes a safer, better medication choice. It's on Schedule Two. And the other would be that there is this high-level regulation, this high-level oversight, and so DHSS, in this case, will be the one who will be sending out inspectors frequently to inspect all these facilities, including the dispensaries, to ensure 100% compliance, and that would be more difficult with the conventional pharmacy. We see this conflict in different areas of the law, where state law and federal law conflict. Um, what type of risks does that create for those who want to sell medical marijuana here in the state, who want to cultivate at any process along that, as well as um, those who might want to use it. As far as patients in this case who would be using it, I assume your question's in the context of as authorized under Amendment 2. Yes. So authorized qualified patients with patient card, they are technically violating the Controlled Substances Act under federal law. But as a practical matter, the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's offices have always said, we're not interested in prosecuting individuals. Their, their focus would be on manufacturers, distributors, and so on. So the Department of Health and Senior Services, primary facility licensees. Those facilities and their operators, they do have basically an umbrella of safety. It's provided by a budget provision called the Rohrbacher Pulmonary Amendment. It's process of changing to be called the Joyce Amendment. And what it provides is that 
the money that is being allocated in the budget to the Federal Department of Justice may not be used to interfere with a state that has medical marijuana laws, um, to interfere with that state's implementation of its medical marijuana laws. And in 2016, the Ninth Circuit interpreted Brubacher in the context of California's medical marijuana laws and said, what it means is we aren't just preventing the Department of Justice from suing California and saying you've adopted laws that violate the Controlled Substance Act. What it means is the Department of Justice is prohibited from shutting down dispensaries and shutting down the cultivators because doing so would effectively interfere with California implementing its medical marijuana laws. But the Ninth Circuit was clear to warn everyone this is not immunity. You aren't being clear of your violation. You are still committing federal violations, but the Department of Justice is prevented from prosecuting those violations. If the robot and home and our amendment were to go away, there's a five-year statute of limitations on controlled substance act violations that could be prosecuted for your conduct, even while a record was in effect. So the answer for Missouri licensees in this case, and many of my clients, as I always tell them, you must comply strictly and completely with state law. That is what affords you this umbrella of coverage. The moment you are compliant with state law, you're a risk of federal prosecution. Do you have any indication from your folks in Washington that Congress is going to change anything to, to end this confusion? The legislation in Congress that would change this dynamic is typically a 10th Amendment type of, a, of an outcome where Congress would say, this is something which should be left to the states. This isn't something that the federal government needs to regulate, treat it like alcohol. In fact, that's, that's the byline of some of the legislation. Can you explain the difference? Is there a difference between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana in terms of the chemical content or in terms of, of what people feel when they use it? No. The, the one distinction might be that recreational marijuana is sometimes stronger because people are going for a more specific outcome. But truth be told, there are some instances, I think, where patients have particular conditions that may require stronger medical marijuana. So in truth, the answer is really no. It's the legal status of the marijuana, not, not its chemical compounds. Now, where does CBD oil fit into all of this? Is it just kind of a freelance thing out there? Well, it's related. It's grown from uh, what, what has been dubbed industrial hemp. Hemp, marijuana, they're all the same plant, cannabis sativa. Industrial hemp or hemp is by definition a variant of cannabis, a strain of cannabis that has a very low THC content. It's been defined at 0.3% or less of THC, which is the component that causes the high. CBD is one of the other main compounds found in cannabis. It also has a small psychoactive effect, but it's very benign and it doesn't cause a high, it doesn't cause impairment or intoxication. And so CBD oil is typically and most efficiently derived from various cannabis that are hemp, which means they've been genetically engineered to have a very high level of CBD and a very low level of THC. And the difference now in terms of why that is out there, why you see it everywhere, is that in 2018, very, uh, December 20th, 2018, the president signed legislation in the 2018 Farm Bill, which said that hemp, as defined against 0.3% or less of THC, is not within the definition of marijuana for purposes of controlled substances. When the people, when the producers grow marijuana under our law, are there restrictions on how they can grow this? I mean, do they have to grow it inside? Can they grow it outside with a big fence around it? Anything like that? Yes, there are many, many restrictions in terms of the security that's required and so on. But 
the method of growing isn't really restricted. Under the Constitution, you could apply for a license to grow outdoor, or in a greenhouse, or indoor. As a practical matter, with our climate and just with the, the inconsistencies that are in here with growing outdoors, that's not, it's not likely that any Missouri's licenses will be issued to an outdoor grower. Most of the growing will occur indoor because there is a huge burden, if you will, on the cultivators to control the environment, to control the lighting conditions, the ambient humidity, the ambient temperatures, and doing that outdoors is extremely difficult. What is the doctor's role in this process? We've talked about how it's grown, then how um, a patient is seeking this or a doctor believes that a patient could benefit from medical marijuana. How does that process work? The role of the physicians is, is often misunderstood. Many people think that, that the doctors must meet with the patient and then issue some type of prescription and advise the patient on what types of marijuana to buy, what methods to consume it, how often to use it, what strength of marijuana. And in fact, the physician's role is nothing of the sort. The physician's role is to sign a form that certifies that the patient has in the doctor's discretion a qualifying medical condition, and that is defined in Amendment 2. I liken it to uh, getting a physical, so a, a, a high school student wants to play football. Doctor may think playing football is a terrible idea, but the doctor's opinion about football is relevant. The doctor's just certifying that the student is sufficiently physical fit, doesn't have any medical conditions that would prevent the student from playing football. Doctor signs a form, doesn't have responsibility if the student goes out and is injured playing football. So it's a very limited role. And then as an individual, if you decide to take advantage of this, a doctor signs the form, how does that then work? Do you have a specific ID that you use in order to purchase your select choice of marijuana product or medical marijuana product? Or um, can you walk us through that next step? The way it will work, a uh, patient will visit with a physician. It is a typical medical visit. The physician will want to ask questions and gather information to make a medical record of everything that's happening, and then it is a medical decision to decide that a patient has a qualifying medical condition. Doctor signs a form, the patient will take this certification form, and then there's a separate form the patient will fill out and deliver both to the Department of Health and Senior Services. It's an application for a patient card. That patient card will then be issued to the patient. It's good for one year. If the patient has the same conditions or other conditions that would qualify for a card, they can go see a doctor again, be recertified, and then reapply. This is $25 annual fee. After the dispensaries are open, patients can take their patient card and then a picture ID, state ID, driver's license, go to the dispensary, and they have to show those, those pieces of identification to get through the outer layer of security. There's a waiting room that's, that's open to the public, but to get past that to the point where you have access to the agents inside who can sell the marijuana, you have to be able to show those pieces of identification. And then once you have the product, how much can you possess at one time? Is there a limitation on that? And if you have it in um, various forms, are there different quantity amounts for gummies versus something that you might smoke? Right. Well, I'll answer the second part first. Uh, there is you know, basically measured by weight, by ounces, the flour, and then any other thing, the gummies, the vape pens, everything's like that, 
there's basically a conversion chart, an equivalency to determine how much. And so using just the weight measurements, this was in the Constitution, the purchase limit for an individual patient in a 30-day time period is four ounces, which is a significant amount. Physicians can, if they really believe in that condition warrants it, include in the certification form a recommendation to allow the patient to buy more. But that will certainly be the exception to the rule. As far as possession, a patient at any given time cannot possess more than twice that limit. So at any given time, they can't have more than eight ounces in their possession. If they exceed that, their license can be disciplined. If they exceed it by more than twice, and, and it's found to have been intentional, they can actually be prosecuted criminally. And can you transport it and carry that at all times, or is there anywhere that you're restricted from having that product on you? There isn't really a restriction on carrying it or transporting it, but it can't be consumed anywhere in public. It must be consumed in the home, so there's really no reason to be carrying it around or, or transporting it. Uh, it needs to be consumed in private. could be some occasions where if someone needs to and it's appropriate for their workplace, they may be able to transport it to and from work, but as a general matter, they won't be using that work. If I go on vacation somewhere and I, want, and I fly to some foreign country, can I take it with me? Will I get it through all my, with my luggage at the airport, or am I in trouble? You can get it through your luggage in the airport. Uh, the TSA is looking for bombs, not marijuana. Uh, when you land, depends on what, what the laws are in that jurisdiction. So there is a consideration there. But I, I assume I would be able to consume it in my hotel room, not the lobby particularly, but... It depends on where you are. You may not be able to. You know, if it's if it is a, a state or if it's a country where it is still an illegal substance, the same analysis would apply as if it was heroin. If you're just traveling in state, if, are you limited in that it can only be in your residence? Um, if you were, you know, on a trip in state, could you take that medication or that medical marijuana uh, in some form in a hotel? Yes. Yeah. The idea is you can't consume a public. So if you're in the private of your own hotel room, that'd be fine. But Missouri law wouldn't say that you can walk through the lobby smoking a marijuana joint. Can hotels or establishments or if somebody has an Airbnb that you're running, can they place limitations? Or is that a constitutional right that you have? It is a constitutional right. And there are provisions that cover where that constitutional right starts and stops. And so it is spelled out there. I, I would assume if you smoke it in a motel room, you'd want to get a smoking room in the motel room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and more than likely, you'd want to just choose an option that doesn't involve smoking. Gummy syrup or something like that. And can you drive or operate heavy machinery or a lot of those other warning symbols that we see on other medication? Um, is it okay to do all those things after you've taken your dose of medical marijuana? Absolutely not. Now, the, the standard is that you may not, you have no constitutional right to consume medical marijuana if doing so and then engaging in another activity would be negligent or violate professional liability standards. And what if your employer has drug tests? If your employer has drug tests, they, number one, have somewhat of an old-fashioned view of the world. Uh, drug tests are, are to a large degree going out of vogue, except in instances where you talk about a commercial driver, operator, construction equipment. There it makes more sense. But if a if an employer chooses to use drug tests, the idea of having zero tolerance 
is, is basically a thing of the past in, in a medical marijuana state because standard drug tests will not differentiate between someone who is consuming medical marijuana days ago, maybe even weeks ago, versus someone who's currently intoxicated by the marijuana. There isn't a solution akin to a breathalyzer that can tell if someone is actively under the influence. And that is where the Constitution sets out the protections. They do it in, in sort of a, an inverse way. The, the Constitution describes it as, you do not have a right to sue your employer if you try to work or you work while under the influence of marijuana. So it creates difficulties for the employer who says, well, how do I know if they're under the influence of marijuana? And in, in multiple states, like National Illinois um, Recreational Marijuana Law, there's a good example of basically a multi-factor test. It's similar to field sobriety tests that police might use. It, just observing the person's behaviors, look at mistakes they're making, are they having issues with their balance, and different things like that. And that is really the best that can be done right now until a better solution is found. It seems to me it would probably be a safe thing, though, to tell your employer that you're, you're on this medication. It depends. Some people worry if I, if I say that, uh, then maybe I'll be predisposed to, to bias. Maybe people will be looking for reasons to suggest that I am under the influence, that I've come to work in a bad condition. And the flip side of that is that an employer certainly cannot, certainly should not ask an employee that question. That's akin to asking about if someone has a certain medical condition, which violates a number of employment laws. Are there any best practices or policies that you would recommend for employers to consider putting in place given this change? It is a very gray area for employers. I kind of feel sorry for employers right now. I think as far as best practices, uh, it is certainly within the right to include in an employment manual what the Constitution provides, this idea that you do not have a right to come to work, that you may have a patient card, that you may have a medical condition, you don't have a right to come to work under the influence of marijuana because that puts you at risk, that puts your coworkers at risk, uh, the businesses, clients at risk. Where the difficulty comes in though is patients who have serious medical conditions and they would typically use the medicine to try and alleviate a pain that interferes with their ability to do work. That is an area that's gonna to need to be developed. But the impairment is really a clear line. And that's especially the case, again, with an employer who has Know, heavy equipment operators, or commercial truck drivers, school bus drivers. These are individuals who certainly shouldn't be treading near that line. Where does health insurance enter into this? Can I, well, my insurance, does do the companies, insurance companies, are they signed on to this? Will they provide coverage for these costs? Or if I get my insurance through my employer, is that an additional quirk that we need to look at? No, it, it has no application. Health insurers uniformly say, no, this is not covered. This is a federally illegal substance, we aren't going to cover it. And what's interesting is in states where there's medical marijuana, there are regular statistics showing that among uh, the Medicare population, there are studies showing that the number and incident of opioid prescriptions has gone down about 6%, which means people on Medicare are choosing not to accept these conventional medications that would be paid in whole or part by Medicare, and instead coming out of pocket 100% to buy this alternative. In the past, we've had the legislature tell insurance companies they will cover certain things. Do you see that coming down the pipe anytime soon? No, I don't. Okay. Is, is there anything in the, in the law or the procedures that specify that every county will have at least one grower and every county will have at least one dispensary? No. The amendment to 
did not impose geographic dispersion for cultivation or for manufacturers. Theoretically, they could all be clumped together in one county. As a practical matter, it's very unlikely that they will. There are pieces of the application that talk about community involvement, and the state also included in its rules some bonuses for uh, choosing to situate your facility in a zip code that is deemed economically distressed by virtue of an employment rate found in a census uh, report that they had selected. And so people took advantage of the opportunity to propose to situate in those zip codes. So that will that will naturally impose some kind of geographic dispersion. Beyond that, moment, two did did say for dispensaries, we're going to have 24 dispensaries in each of our eight federal congressional districts. And so you can imagine this congressional district two, which is a lot of St. Louis County, a little bit of St. Charles County. Then within those federal congressional districts, uh, DHSS did something else that was somewhat unique we hadn't seen in other states. For the Missouri House districts, we have 163, I believe, House districts. Within that House district, if there are multiple applicants, whichever one of the applicants has the highest score within the House district, they will also receive a bonus, a 5% bonus. And that will most likely be a difference maker. For years, we've had big discussions at the legislature about setting up a prescription drug monitoring program statewide. Would any of this plug into that kind of a program so that somebody would know if they weren't going around shopping for, uh, for distribution of marijuana? You mean in order to, to implement basically the four-ounce limitation? Yeah. No, we won't be a part of that prescription. I don't know that it would be precluded, but there is already a layer of protection. Um, all of these facilities will need to uh, pay quite a bit of money, actually, to contract with what they call a seed-to-sale software company or have some other kind of seed-to-sale solution where the product is tracked at every step of the way in rather intricate detail. That seed-to-sale system that each facility has must plug into the state's statewide system, which is called the track and trace system, and that that uh, contractor is called metric. And by virtue of metric, this track and trace system, the state will at all times be able to really track where all the product is and as to any given patient, how much that patient has purchased in the relevant 30-day time period. And so if a patient hits that maximum limit and tries to go to a different dispensary to buy again, it'll be flagged and the purchase won't go through. And that's in real time? Yes. I wanted to ask you about um, the economical side of this. We've been talking about the medical benefits and the process and implementation, but is this going to be a revenue generator for the state of Missouri? Is the uh, general revenue coming into the state going to increase, or do you think that with all of these implementations and tracking systems that it might ultimately be a wash? Well, the answer is that the Constitution was written in such a way that it will have neither an impact, good or neither a good or a bad impact on the general revenue for the state of Missouri. It is a an unfunded constitutional mandate, and so there was a bit of, of ingeniousness, I think, in Amendment Two. The drafters put in a provision that said, as of January fifth, twenty nineteen, you may begin pre-filing your fees for the applications that you're going to file beginning August third. And you may base the question, well, why would anyone pay their bill seven months early? The answer is that prospective licensees understood that DHSS can't hire people. 
You can't draft rules. You can't draft an application without any money. So in the end, those 600 prospective licensees chose to pay their fees in advance. For dispensary and manufacturing licenses, that's $6,000 a piece. For cultivation licenses, $10,000. Collectively, those 600 people who pre-filed gave DHSS almost $4 million. And it's used that money to set up all this framework up to this point. Well, that raises the question then for the consumer. How expensive is this stuff going to be? The market will let us know. Uh, the state isn't going to impose prices, but one of the aspects of all this is the competitiveness of it. And because unlike some other states, like Arkansas, for example, only has five cultivations, uh, we will have 60, we'll have 86 manufacturers and we'll have 192 dispensaries. And what that means is there'll be a, a heck of a lot of competition between and among those different licensees, among the cultivators, to attract business from the manufacturers and dispensaries and so on. And for the dispensaries, with the patients in particular at the beginning, there will be significantly more supply available than patient demand. Patient demand or patient counts will grow as time goes on as sort of a, a societal shift happens where people will see that their aunt has come to Thanksgiving and she, she tells everyone she's been using medical marijuana for her back pain. She hasn't killed her cat. She hasn't lost her job. Everything seems fine. And so someone else at the table says, I should try that for my condition. And it just moves across the societal uh, landscape and people become more comfortable. People begin to realize it's not really a problem as long as it's used responsibly. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. Today's podcast discussion of medical marijuana is a good guide to understanding some of the prospects and a few of the problems of implementing what the voters enacted in the Missouri Constitution in 2018. I do have a few questions, which I will get to eventually. While I'm not steeped in knowing the details of the recently emerged cannabis industry, I still call it marijuana. I am a child of the 60s, after all. To start, a little history will give us context. I remember a rumor from 50 years ago that a major tobacco company had trademarked the label Tijuana Gold in anticipation of the legalization of marijuana. This, of course, was your father's and mother's marijuana, a collection of crumbled leaves and a few seeds packed in a pipe and smoked a drug with the nastiest legal classification, one that carried a three-year mandatory minimum prison sentence in the state where I first briefly encountered it, a drug that packed all the wallop of a mild sedative, a drug so soporific that it caused many of us to stay mostly with our previous drug of choice, beer. Pot became an easy symbol of the 1960s generation's revolt against war, racial injustice, and economic inequality. Pot and its image of disorder helped spawn the war on drugs with its racial underpinnings and the cultural clashes that have continued to poison our politics for the past five decades or so. In this same time period, the past 50 years, there has been a revolution in the botany of marijuana. The mildly sedating drug of the 1960s has evolved to concentrations of THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, many times greater with offspring that genuinely produced useful medicine. Though study of its medicinal effects has been stifled for years by its legal classification, pot has persisted. And here we are with the generation of the 1960s that failed to get its commercial Tijuana gold, 
along with failing to end the Vietnam War, failing to end the war on drugs, and a whole lot of other wars in between, now enthusiastically embracing the movement to legalize marijuana, medical or otherwise. Marijuana might ease this generation's aches of aging and make its transitions to the next life easier and less painful. Pot may also be a substitute for harder drugs, opioids, some of which have major pharmaceutical corporate sponsorship that are killing large numbers of our generation's children and grandchildren. We have arrived, and the public and many of its politicians are there too. Polling for what it's worth shows overwhelming support for legalization of medical marijuana and substantial support for recreational marijuana. I participated in the effort to legalize medical marijuana in 2018. My reason for doing so was that the war on drugs, in the case of marijuana, was filling jails and prisons with non-influential people, mostly young men who were racial minorities, while leaving more privileged kids free to roam. My main effort in the fall 2018 campaign for medical marijuana was an op-ed newspaper essay comparing the three propositions that the voters would face on the ballot that November. The op-ed essay recommended Amendment 2, and the pro-Amendment 2 campaign distributed the op-ed widely on social media and other advertising. To my surprise, the voters made the correct choice and rejected the other two propositions. It is, of course, surpassingly strange that the voters, not the state legislature or the Congress, would take it upon themselves to legalize a drug by amending the state constitution. Has the process of legislating become so bottled up that the Congress and most state legislatures are unable to enact changes in laws that the public so widely favors? Well, now that we've got it, what now? I could elaborate on the implementation of the law, but it would take so long that I would have to get my own podcast. Instead, I leave you with a number of questions to ponder, as I promised. First, marijuana possession and sale remain serious felonies under federal law. Will Congress erase those sanctions to accommodate the states that have made marijuana legal? Second, will lawyers jeopardize their law licenses by assisting clients in setting up marijuana businesses? The Missouri Constitution says that lawyers who assist in the business should not be disciplined. But curiously, the Missouri Supreme Court last year added a sentence to a comment to one of the ethics rules that seems to point out that, despite the Missouri Constitution, this drug remains illegal under federal law. And will lawyers face discipline for helping clients get in the business of selling a drug that is still illegal under federal law? I don't know. Third, will the State Department of Health and Senior Services, the agency that is empowered to issue licenses for the cultivation, testing, distribution, and sale of marijuana products, choose licensees fairly? The state has set a limit on the number of licenses that it will issue, and hundreds of applicants have been turned down. Many of these disappointed applicants, alleging that there has been little or no difference between the scores assigned to successful applicants and to rejected applicants, are pursuing appeals. These legal challenges seem to raise a serious question. Is the granting of licenses ultimately an insider's game where the spoils go to applicants who are politically favored? How will the state pay the lawyers the state must hire to defend these appeals? Fourth, Missouri government has insisted, with scant support in the Constitution, that the state must keep secret the names of those who hold interests in marijuana businesses. But the Constitution requires a limit on licenses that an individual can hold. How can the public know that this is being enforced if the identities of owners of licenses are a secret? 
So far, the courts have favored transparency over secrecy in this instance. Fifth, is legalization and regulation of medical marijuana a gateway to legalizing recreational marijuana? I think so. A proposed constitutional amendment already is gaining steam. So to conclude, many satirists believe that if government cannot be effective, it should at least be entertaining. As one who has no financial interest in the marijuana business, I find it kind of fun, educational, and at times horrifying to see how government goes about regulating pleasure or the easing of pain. This may not be exactly what the Puritans who helped establish our American society had in mind. Is this what our revolutionary forebears meant by the pursuit of happiness? Stay tuned. The American experiment in democracy marches on. This is Mike Wolf with a few sobering thoughts. Legalese. Is there any provision that allows an individual to grow their own plants for medical marijuana use? Yes. The amendment does include provision that allow for what they call home grow. And I mentioned earlier, it's $25 for a patient card. If you want to be a patient who grows your own, it's a $100 fee. And at this point, there are already patients who have made that application who presumably are growing in their homes now. There are a few restrictions in place. The, the, they may not grow more than six mature plants at a time. All the growing has to occur, uh, occur in an enclosed locked space. And there's a little bit of controversy about the fact that as a part of that agreement, uh, the patient agrees that the Department of Health and Senior Services has a right to come in and inspect that area and make sure that it's secure, make sure that it's being done right, that there isn't more, there aren't more plants growing than permitted. And so in order to exercise that right, you're exchanging a little bit of your privacy in your own home by saying, okay, the government has the right to come in and check me out. That's right. How much benefit can you get from six plants? Because I don't know, I don't know how many flowers are on plant or how many flowers it takes to to provide the kind of dose of, of marijuana medicine, if you will, that, uh, that would help you with a condition. The answer is quite a bit. I don't know the exact conversion, and and to a large degree, among cultivators, will talk about this. It's a it's a measure of pride. How much yield can I realize from one plant, or how much yield can I realize? Sometimes it's measured in terms of how many watts of energy in our lighting systems per pounds of marijuana we generate. So some of the answer comes down to how good of a cultivator the patient is and how efficient they are with growing with those six plants. But the short answer is that six plants were selected because it, typically I would think a, an average cultivator could achieve approximately the four ounces in the 30-day time period. Where do they get the seed to begin with? I mean, uh, the main facility? Yes. That's, uh, that's kind of an open question. Uh, the, the answer is that DHSS's rules do not cover that. Uh, the answer is that necessarily it would seem that those uh, genetics would need to come across state lines, which would violate federal law. And so as a practical matter, we talked about the cultivation center that would build out and be ready for a commencement inspection. The inspectors would come in and conduct that commencement inspection and, and sort of approve the facility, ready to go forward. And then that night, most likely, all the power to all the security cameras and everything would be shut down. And the next morning, when all the security cameras come back up, there will be genetics in the facility. Immaculate conception. <laughs> so I'm not likely to see somebody walking around with a cap on their head that says, do weed. <laughs> <laughs> when you went to law school, did you ever imagine that you would be practicing 
the area of marijuana law and um you know because i know that missouri is just the newest on your list and you've been handling this across multiple states for many years the answer is no and that was not on the curriculum at mizzou law school uh, (laughs) marijuana law although it's showing up at different universities around the country um marijuana business i don't know if any law schools have classes for it yet but no, my practice has historically been in the area of commercial litigation, class action defense. My first job at the Attorney General's office, though, was professional licensing. Uh, and so that has now come around to, to be a very beneficial experience since these are clients now who will be licensed. And these are clients who, if there is a dispute about that license, it will be prosecuted before the Administrative Hearing Commission, just like any other professional license. In your experience, have you run across any, any- cases where somebody has not benefited from marijuana as much as they thought they should, or perhaps has even benefited negatively from it, leading to a malpractice action against a doctor or a supplier, anything like that? Personally, I haven't seen that. I, I'm sure it happens. I'm sure that, that you know, like, like a lot of other substances, it will affect different people in different ways. And so, for example, uh, one of my clients is one of the licensees in the state of Missouri, uh, from 2015 with authority to grow hemp and extract it for CBD oil. And that CBD oil could be sold to patients with severe forms of epilepsy if they had the right patient card approved from the state. And through that program, I, will, I believe most of the patients have shown remarkable success using the CBD oil to try and alleviate the seizures. In some cases, hundreds of seizures a day. But they vary among the patients, those outcomes. Now, in terms of a bad experience, you know, there are stories of people who consume too much marijuana and it causes them to have a great deal of anxiety and fear. There was a lawsuit actually in Colorado where tragically a, a man consumed, among other things, some marijuana and apparently lost all his faculties and shot his wife. And there was a lawsuit, and the allegation was that the manufacturers of the marijuana products and the dispensary that sold it were negligent, that they had failed to warn, hey, if you consume this, you may do crazy things. And there was an argument made that there were more warnings on things like toothpaste and dog food than there were on this package that this person consumed. In the end, the lawsuit was unsuccessful. There was no liability found because the packaging was compliant with, at that time, Colorado's labor laws. Those labeling laws have been changed and improved. And so that's a warning that there are these product liability concerns, and you see that too with the vaping. Is there a list of ailments or illnesses that marijuana can be used to treat? You can find a lot of information on the internet uh, under DHS's rules. Uh, there will be an obligation on dispensaries to have available written materials for patients to review, to understand what kinds of conditions may benefit, what types of marijuana with different strains, what sorts of uh, delivery methods may be best for the patient. And those dispensaries will also have employees on staff. They aren't doctors, they aren't there to render medical advice, but they are knowledgeable about the products and they can give advice about different conditions. Isn't it basically up to the doctor to decide whether marijuana will help this patient for some condition or another? Not really. Again, that's that's in keeping with having the physicians feel comfortable with the, with their role. Some, some physicians are very knowledgeable and have done a great deal of research, and they will choose to advise their patients, say, hey, I would recommend you try this, I would recommend you consider you know, this often, and maybe, maybe titrate up from there. 
most physicians probably won't. Most physicians will say, we're going to need you to do our research. All I'm really doing now is certifying that you have a qualifying medical condition. And that means that it may benefit from the use of medical marijuana. The Amendment 2 does contain a list of some of those qualifying medical conditions. There are sort of broad catch-all provisions, but there are also specific conditions that the amount of medical research out there suggests would be beneficial. We've been, we've been hearing quite a bit of concern about vaping lately. Are there any concerns about marijuana vaping? Yeah, I think so. I, from what I've read in, in these news articles, in some cases it was people who were consuming products that had THC in them as well. And so, yeah, I think that's a shockwave for the industry to figure out what the problem is. Uh, I know there have been concerns about finding the answer to that uh, so that it can be avoided because, yeah, there's not quite enough oversight in that area of the law to really feel comfortable. And so it comes back to DHS's process by which they're choosing these licensees. It is unbelievable the sophistication level of these applicants that I'm aware of, the applicants that I represent, for example. They're very successful business people. Uh, they take it very seriously. They are true believers in this medicine, and they really are doing it because they believe it's important to have it out there. And so they're going to pay a tremendous amount of respond, uh, attention to what needs to be done to make sure their products are safe. That also is the element, too, with the testing. There's the element of DHSS doing its inspections and its oversight. So there's a lot of responsibility involved in this. But there's still going to be a lot of learning by doing here. There is some element of that, but there's also, that's a benefit of us being the 33rd state. So we've been able to learn from a lot of mistakes that have happened in other states. I know that DHSS has done a lot of research about how other states have approached this, and that we've been the beneficiary of that. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I didn't tell you one thing about the financials. Okay. You know, we were talking about that earlier. Yes. So the, the money that's generated from the application fees, from the renewal fees, and the retail taxes, there is a 4% tax that patients will pay at the dispensaries, which compared to other states is relatively low. Is that on top of this state tax and local taxes that already exist? Yes, on top of normal normal sales taxes. So to the extent there are normal sales taxes, that will be more money in the general revenue. But all of the, the that money then is deposited into a veteran's health care fund. That fund is used to fully fund all operations for Department of Health and Senior Services. So there's no cost to the state of Missouri at all to have this new industry, which is going to generate a number of jobs, a lot of income, you know, through the state. But all the rest of the money, the majority probably of the money in that fund, will then be given to the Missouri Veterans Commission. And then the Missouri Veterans Commission will use that for veterans' homes, veterans' health care, and in that sense will alleviate some of the financial burden on the state. So that revenue isn't earmarked specifically for that purpose? In the Constitution. Well, thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2, a special production of the Missouri Bar, and we hope we've clarified Missouri's new marijuana law with what it allows and what it doesn't, and we've been doing this with Attorney Eric Walter. Well, Eric, thank you very much. This has been very informative. Thank you. Uh, there are some resources you might want to check, whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal solutions and questions. That's right, at MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. You can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar's Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more. The topic of marijuana provides a treasure trove of constitutional issues. Let's start with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. In this legislation, Congress identified marijuana as a Schedule I drug. 
in the same category as LSD, heroin, and methamphetamine. Schedule one drugs are so designated because of their high potential for abuse and the lack of any accepted medical use. The production, distribution, and possession of marijuana was identified as a federal crime. This raises the first constitutional issue. What is the federal government doing involving itself with laws criminalizing controlled substances? It's sometimes easy to forget, but the federal government was designed by the framers of the Constitution to be a government of limited power. When Congress wanted to take action, it needed to link that proposed action to one of its powers identified in Article I, Section 8. Does it state anywhere in the Constitution that Congress has the power to criminalize drugs? No. And if the inquiry stopped there, we could all probably agree that Congress overstepped its power. However, it does state in the Constitution that Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. That is the power that Congress chose to rely upon to create the Controlled Substances Act. But that raises yet another question. What does interstate commerce have to do with marijuana? Congress put forth the connection in the text of the Controlled Substances Act. A major portion of the traffic in controlled substances flows through interstate and foreign commerce. Simply put, because so much marijuana moved through interstate commerce and Congress was empowered to regulate interstate commerce, Congress asserted that it had the ability to criminalize marijuana. The second issue concerns the state power to define what will be categorized as criminal within its borders. The Tenth Amendment states that any power not given by the Constitution to the federal government is reserved to the states. From the beginning of our constitutional republic, the Tenth Amendment has been seen as giving the states the police power. This means that the state is to take the lead in regulating the health, safety, and well-being of the people. What is the significance of this for our topic? The Tenth Amendment indicates that it is the state, not the federal government, that will determine what will and will not be considered illegal for its citizens. Within a few years of the passage of the Controlled Substances Act, a number of states began charting a different course for their citizens. Oregon decriminalized possession of marijuana in 1973, and over the next five years, almost a dozen states followed its example. In the 1975 case of Ravin versus State of Alaska, the Alaska Supreme Court called into question whether it was even constitutional to criminalize the mere possession of marijuana. The court stated, citizens of the state of Alaska have a basic right to privacy in their homes under Alaska's constitution. This right of privacy would encompass the possession and ingestion of substances such as marijuana in a purely personal, non-commercial context in the home. Just when it seemed like the tide might be turning, the 70s ended 
Ronald Reagan was elected president and his first lady preached a message of just say no. With the president of the United States claiming that marijuana was the most dangerous of drugs, any momentum for decriminalization was lost. In 1996, California voters approved Proposition 215, which ensured that seriously ill residents of the state would have access to marijuana for medical purposes. And this brings us to our third constitutional issue. What happens when federal law says that marijuana is an illegal controlled substance, while a state says it is a completely acceptable means of providing relief to patients who need it? Like so many constitutional issues, this one would make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The 2005 case of Raich versus Gonzalez involved two California residents, Angel Raich and Diane Monson, who suffered from a number of serious medical conditions. They made use of medical marijuana pursuant to California law after it was prescribed by licensed board certified practitioners. Their doctors had initially prescribed conventional medicines, which were ineffective. The doctors then turned to marijuana, which proved to be the only drug that provided effective treatment. Diane Monson grew her own. Angel Raich relied on neighbors to provide her with marijuana. Monson and Raich filed suit against the Attorney General of the United States and the head of the DEA, asking the court to prohibit the enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act to the extent that it prevented them from possessing, obtaining, or manufacturing cannabis for their personal medical use. Their argument was that their situation had nothing to do with interstate commerce. The marijuana was being prescribed by doctors in California. The marijuana was being grown in California. The marijuana was being consumed in California. If the government of California was okay with this, what business was it of Congress and the DEA? Ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the federal government. However, Justice John Paul Stevens' majority opinion expressed considerable ambivalence about its ruling. He wrote, the case is made difficult by respondents' strong arguments that they will suffer irreparable harm because, despite a congressional finding to the contrary, marijuana does have valid therapeutic purposes. The question before us, however, is not whether it is wise to enforce the statute in these circumstances. Rather, it is whether Congress's power to regulate interstate markets for medicinal substances encompasses the portions of those markets that are supplied with drugs produced and consumed locally. Well-settled law controls our answer. The Controlled Substances Act is a valid exercise of federal power, even as applied to the troubling facts of this case. The court in this case looked back to the 1942 decision in Wickard versus Filburn, which held that Congress could use the interstate commerce power to regulate the amount of wheat a farmer grew on his own land for his own consumption. He too argued that his wheat had no relation to interstate commerce, 
but a unanimous court rejected his argument. Justice Robert Jackson wrote that Apelli's own contribution to the demand for wheat may be trivial by itself is not enough to remove him from the scope of federal regulation, where, as here, his contribution, taken together with that of many others similarly situated, is far from trivial. Justice Stevens wrote, in Wickard, we had no difficulty concluding that Congress had a rational basis for believing that, when viewed in the aggregate, leaving home-consumed wheat outside the regulatory scheme would have a substantial influence on price and market conditions. Here, too, Congress had a rational basis for concluding that leaving home-consumed marijuana outside federal control would similarly affect price and market conditions. Sandra Day O'Connor wrote for the three justices in dissent, stating, one of federalism's chief virtues, of course, is that it promotes innovation by allowing for the possibility that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. This case exemplifies the role of states as laboratories. The state's core police powers have always included authority to define criminal law and to protect the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. Exercising those powers, California has come to its own conclusion about the difficult and sensitive question of whether marijuana should be available to relieve severe pain and suffering. Today, the court sanctions an application of the Federal Controlled Substances Act that extinguishes that experiment without any proof that the personal cultivation, possession, and use of marijuana for medical purposes, if economic activity in the first place, has a substantial effect on interstate commerce and is therefore an appropriate subject of federal regulation. For the dissent, the question of medicinal marijuana that was grown and consumed within the state was a matter for the state to resolve. Some saw the majority opinion of the Supreme Court as an implicit suggestion for Congress to reconsider its classification of marijuana as a Schedule I drug. That Stevens was saying, look, Congress, just because we've recognized that you have the power to do this doesn't make it the right thing to do. We've grown accustomed to constitutional issues being decided by the court. However, sometimes the court recognizes that under our constitutional system, some issues are properly resolved by another branch. This gives every indication of being one of those times in which the court looks to the people's elected representatives to decide an issue. Somewhere, James Madison, the architect of the separation of powers, is smiling. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact our daily lives, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. 
I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you.